I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm talking with Danny Nelson, news editor at Coindesk, which is one of the oldest crypto news organizations around. They also played a key role in the downfall of SBF's empire. Our conversation covers a lot of ground. Danny shares his views on things like citizen journalism on Twitter, conflicts of interest within the crypto-native media, and navigating reporting on an industry where everyone has a hidden objective. One of the main things that stuck with me from this conversation is that being a crypto journalist, a good crypto journalist, is really hard work. When it comes to reporting, there's no other sector I can think of that requires such a high level of technical proficiency, a rounded understanding of financial markets, and a primer in social anthropology. There's a lot of noise out there, and my hope is conversations like this will help you better navigate the never-ending churn of crypto news. A theme we returned to several times in this conversation was the adversarial relationship between the tech industry and journalists. I asked Danny if he thought both sides could benefit from a little more empathy, and his response was, well, you'll see. Let's jump in. Danny Nelson, welcome to Validated. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing well today. How about you? Uh, you know, I'm a little jet lagged, but we're we're thriving here in Philadelphia, the great crypto city. You know, you say that. I hear there's a lot more going on in Philly than there used to be on the crypto scene. You know, I did go to an accounting event a couple weeks ago, and I saw five scammers instead of three scammers. So that that's an increase right there. So you are news editor at CoinDesk, host of the podcast Carpe Consensus. We we have obviously interacted a bunch over the years uh, because you are a journalist and I am at the Solana Foundation. And in my previous role as head of comms there, we obviously uh, interacted a bunch and uh, you asked me some hard questions. I uh, sent you some requests for corrections. But what I want to get into here today as two people who have had a good working relationship over the years is the state of crypto and crypto media the interface between journalism and blockchain, and then the sort of the, the strange emergent world, which is crypto-specific journalism, which for a very long time was uh, sort of an oxymoron. Uh, it was a space that was full of a lot of very unserious publications that were sort of out there to have agendas that maybe weren't strictly journalistic. Um, but I want to I kind of start off with um, a very broad question, which is, how do you see the role of yourself and Coindesk within the crypto ecosystem? You know, I guess I would see myself the same way any journalist would see him or herself, which is to say uh, a high degree of self-worth and self-importance and this perception of oneself as a gatekeeper, whether or not that title is deserved. So I believe that journalists in their best form are out to act as a gatekeeper of sorts out to police the industries that they cover, make sure that people are doing what they say they're doing and holding them to account when they do and when they don't. So for me at Coindesk, I look at this industry, which I've worked in for three years, which I've followed for, I don't know, maybe seven years at this point, and I see a lot of bad actors and I want to make sure that their stories are told. By the same token, I also want to highlight the good stories that there, that are out there, because there are good crypto stories, and I want to bring those narratives to the world and give them light as well. Yeah, I, I want to get into a lot of how that process of reporting out, especially a non-breaking story works in this space. But to sort of zoom out, uh, you know, crypto's relationship with the press, I think, is one that's been is best described as as tenuous. There are a huge number of folks in the space, not just token holders and the folks you see on Twitter, but founders and um, you know CEOs of major blockchain protocols or companies that serve as the blockchain industry that have a very adversarial relationship with the media. I don't think there's really much of a need to name names here, but where do you think some of that comes from? There, there's certainly a, a mainstream media historic dismissal of crypto, but uh, even, you know, within the space, you will see a lot of criticism on Twitter directed at blockchain specific news organizations that have a lot of degree of expertise in the space, but sometimes get it wrong. Where do you kind of think some of that comes from? Well, I think that it comes from this weird amalgamation that crypto is in other industries. You have a, a clearer delineation between the different classes of people which is to say the 
employees in a company, the the executives at a company, the customers in a company. If I'm writing about Bed Bath and Beyond, which you know might only I might only be able to do for a couple of weeks because it's going bankrupt. Though I might also be more inclined to do so because I'm now an expert in writing about bankruptcies. Um, I'm not really worrying about what the customers of Bed Bath and Beyond are thinking, what the employees are thinking, what the executives share are thinking. They're all different parts of this organization of this organizational structure. In crypto, though, you have a much more of a blending, right? The customers are uniquely attuned to the coverage of the thing because they are often holders in the asset that is representative to some extent of the thing. And so they're much more inclined to have an opinion and voice that opinion when they see something they don't like. And that's not the, and that's the same, obviously, for the employees and the executives. But crypto brings everyone together to such a degree that everyone just feels the need to have an opinion. And when people have opinions, their first inclination is not to change their mind when they're faced with information that does not comport with their worldview. Their inclination is to double down. That's not a crypto tick. That's just part of human psychology. Yeah. But we have a lot of structures in this world where we have a lot of people who have vested interest in the success of something. And, you know, a good example of this is uh, large publicly traded companies also have a large diverse group of shareholders that have a, a financial incentive for their long term success. So that's true. But with stocks, investors like to say there are things like fundamentals. And what they mean by that are, you know, revenue and performance and year to date and all these metrics that are standardized because of the, of the stock market. Whether or not one thinks a crypto token has fundamentals, it certainly doesn't have the fundamentals that a company that's publicly listed has. And that lack of standardized information leaves open a big void of, well, how do we give accrue value on this thing? How do we defend its value? And I think that in this theory that I'm making up on the spot, but have, I guess, formulated in some degrees before, more people are more invested in protecting their bags, I would say. Yeah, I guess one of the one of the things I've been thinking about a lot related to this is you don't have to have served in the military to cover the Pentagon. You don't have to have been a member of Congress to be a political reporter in D.C. You don't have to have been a CFO at a company to be a business journalist at Bloomberg or an organization like that. But one of the things that, at least from the outside, is is unique to crypto is the level of technical sophistication you need to be able to accurately navigate what's going on. And this has sort of always been a, a an issue with, with journalism focused on technology. I think if you look at most people who report on Twitter or they report on Facebook, they're not reporting on the technology of Twitter or the technology of Facebook. They're They're largely reporting on the structure of how the company works, the decisions it makes, very sort of human-centric, soft, political science-style uh, components to it. But a huge amount of your reporting involves actually, like, how did this hack occur? Or how is this piece of technology going to actually exist in the real world? Do we trust the claims that this organization is making about the performance of X or Y or the way an exploit actually happened? Um, how do you, as someone who is not an engineer but is a journalist, navigate that process uh, in a much more technical space than if you were covering, you know, another technology or another technology company? You know, it's it's really hard because, in one sense, I when a hack goes down, I'm scrambling to understand what happened, just like anyone else, and I might know some of the key terms, but I might not truly understand how it fits all together even when I publish an article, because I don't have the luxury of time to become an expert in that domain. I just need to figure out the path that the truth took and to tell that path, not understand how it executed that path. But from uh, f f on that point of engaging with the asset class, I would say that for crypto journalists or for journalists who cover crypto, rather, it is certainly helpful to hold and play with amounts of crypto tokens, buy an NFT 
uh, stake some ETH, anything like that, just to understand what's happening. It's not a prerequisite, I would say, but it really does help to engage with this technology and even to get scammed out of some of the coins because all of these things give perspective that is really invaluable and helps shape a better understanding of this wacky world. Yeah, you know, that's that's one of those things that there, there's so much I want to talk about there. But I want to I want to hit on that ethics policy component, because I think that's one of the ones that with people like me really catches fire. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to a reporter who's writing about the launch of something on Solana. And I say, like, oh, have you used the thing? And they're like, oh, well, actually, our ethics policy means I can't use the thing. And that's always been a really interesting point for me because I can't imagine writing about Facebook and not using Facebook or writing about Twitter and not using Twitter or reviewing a car and not being allowed to drive the car. But of course, there are reasons that these types of things exist to prevent bias in reporting if someone has a financial upside in the product they're covering. What do you think is the right way to navigate that yourself? And how, how does that work at an organization like Coindesk? Yeah, so at Coindesk, we have a, po a policy whereby we disclose on our bio pages when we have holdings of any asset over $1,000. If you go there, you'll see um, in my bio, I, right now, I believe I have four assets listed, Bitcoin, Ether, Solana, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, and the LinksDAO NFT. Uh, and those are assets that are or were valued at over $1,000. I will say that Three of those four assets continue to be valued at over $1,000 in the amount that I hold. That's Bitcoin, Ether, and the LinkStar NFT. I could remove the Solana one, but I don't, mainly because I cover the Solana ecosystem. And so I think it's important to, for people to understand that I still hold an amount of the key asset to that ecosystem. Yeah, it's funny. The, the disclosure in some ways becomes a badge of credibility. It does. And it also has the potential to become an attack vector when someone read something that they don't like or that they, they perceive to be either positive or negative in one direction, they can latch onto that and say, oh, well, he's a Solana Maxi uh, to discredit an argument. Well, you know what? That, that could be their opinion. That's fine. I'm, I, I have the asset because I'm following the principles that my company has set out, and I believe that they are correct in this weird environment. And I think that transparency is key. And critically also, I will say with the with the holding of assets at Coindesk, we have strict trading policies. We're not allowed to move in and out of assets easily. Uh, it's a it's a buy and hold, and everything has to be disclosed to the company situation. And I only ever buy, <laughs> so there's not much to worry about there. But, but if I was a good trader, I wouldn't be a journalist. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so. One of the things you were you were mentioning earlier was you do specifically see your role as a gatekeeper in the space. Um, I want to get into sort of the role of citizen journalism as it's coming back into vogue on Twitter, specifically how it relates to crypto. But kind of before we we get into that, you know, you mentioned that when something happens, like maybe a major hack or something along those lines, your process of figuring out what happened is implicitly a system of you choosing who to trust. How do you go about the process of figuring out what information you find trustworthy? How do you verify something is, to the best of anyone's ability, true um, when you're going through and reporting out a story in a breaking news environment? You know, we've all seen stories that just get it wrong. There is this process of reporting, sure, but then there are many stories that have come out of many different publications, usually not Coindesk, but sometimes Coindesk, that have statements or a view of something that isn't necessarily 100% accurate. There are examples like Block, right? Block is a great publication, but a few weeks ago, they published a story around Solana Foundation public RPC endpoints being offline, which was a true statement. But the way the thing was contextualized, a lot of people on Twitter initially felt they were saying something actually mission critical was offline, which was not in it was not accurate. I mean, to give a different example, I think of someone just getting it wrong. There was a, a report on uh, crypto developers a couple months ago or weeks ago that basically said, oh, well, look, Solana's developer ecosystem is down about 90%, uh, according to this chart from an organization or uh, some group of people. Yeah, that they said there were 75 developers yeah, on said Solana. They went from like 5,000 developers to 75,000. And at that time, other 
developer ecosystems had lost some ground, but certainly not that much. And the the chart wasn't just a, a bad take. It was factually incorrect because the people who had created it had, you know, compared two data sets that weren't comparable. If I if I remember correctly. Yeah, they were looking at core developers on the Solana repo as opposed to and they were comparing it to ecosystem developer numbers. Yeah. Which is stupid. It's too different. They're both developers, but it doesn't show you anything to say, well, there's there, there's not 10. I don't think there's 10,000 Solana developers, but let's just say there's 10,000 Solana developers at point X and then at point Y, there's 14 core devs. That doesn't, it's a, you know, it's potato, tomato. It doesn't work. But a lot of people latched onto that because one, it confirmed their take or two, they trusted the entity that published the information. So for me as a journalist, I try to treat with credibility those organizations and people that I believe have warranted that title, which is hard to say. And it's also extremely subjective. I have a very strong bias toward hearing things firsthand. Like if something's just out, out there on the internet and I take that and I summarize it, well, what extra work have I done to confirm the validity of that information other than to broadcast it on a louder platform i've done nothing so i need to find people that can give me hopefully the same answer or the right answer but to give me more information about that answer not just here's what it has happened but here's why it's happened because if they're also able to say here's why it's happened the likelihood that they actually understand what's happening is much higher because you can't just fabricate that information quite as easily. And you can't, like, to go back to that, the 90% to 5% report or whatever it was, I, I think they made a mistake. They made a really stupid mistake, but I don't think they were out to make that mistake because they wanted to attack Solana. They were just stupid. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about that component though because there are many you know look, crypto is awash with people who have an objective behind information right sometimes that objective behind information is simply to make the protocol or project they work for look good sometimes that motivation is uh they're they're bringing maybe accurate real information to you but they have a large short position on an asset right sort of similar to what an activist investor or activist hedge fund would do in the public markets how do you evaluate that idea of in like when a source comes to you with information they have an ulterior motive behind it how does that change or does that change the way that you interact with that information everyone has a motive austin everyone gives information whether adversarial or not that will fit their desires in life everyone knows that but in in, in the most important person to know that is the journalist right this is not a crypto problem. This is a journalist problem. In political media, every politician who's ever leaked any story whatsoever about their own candidate or about um, a competing candidate is doing so with a motive. And the journalists that are there to write those stories, and, and most political stories have you know, their anonymous sources, they just, they parrot those narratives. I'm not a political journalist, so I don't fully understand how that meat grinder works, but I do know that everyone is peddling their own narrative for their own purposes. And so the journalist's role is to make sure that they're not getting played by those narratives and to do the work to at least make sure that whatever information they have is truthful so that they can move forward with confidence and not just be spinning a narrative on behalf of someone else. Do you feel like you need to understand that motivation before you take that information in or act on that information? Yes and no. When it comes to big stories that have big uh, impact, we want to make sure that we think through the game theory that's happening and make sure that we, we, are, we feel comfortable and confident that someone's position in a story isn't going to be clouding the informational accuracy of that the story that they're offering now how we go about to confirm that you know can vary from time to time but we but we have editors and we want to we, we talk to them and they push us well 
Why do you know this? How do they know the, know this? What's the what's at stake here? And we talk it through and make sure that it clears the bar. Yeah, the the one I'm thinking of is, you know, probably the biggest story of 2022 for for CoinDesk. Somehow you obtained a copy of the balance sheet of FTX and Alameda, which had wide scale repercussions. Now, I'm sure there's a process of evaluating what that person's motivations were in providing you that document. But the, you know, the the outcome of that information getting public, I mean, at at the time, was there any idea among, uh, you know, you as, as a news editor at Coindesk that this would have wide scale repercussions? So I wasn't involved firsthand with the publication of the first tranche of this story, which was the Alameda balance sheet that showed that everything was not quite as kosher as Sam would have liked it to seem. But I can say that we had no freaking idea what kind of storm this would have caused. We published this article that basically showed that Alameda was using the house money as collateral for billions of dollars of loans. On November 2, the market digested it. Caroline called it FUD. Sam called it FUD. Everyone was like, that's fine. And then on November 6th, CZ pulled out a Glock and finished the job. So that's how it went down. We did not think that this would cause what it did. We had no idea. Our role in this was just as shocking to us as to everyone else because we just thought, well, this is a story with potential to cause some controversy, but to think that it would, you know, push over an empire or to not, not to, to, to overstate our importance, to think that it would set the stage for the pushing over of an empire is beyond comprehension. How do you feel about that? You know, for this one, it's a it's a pretty good feeling. Like I had no idea that Sam was a fraud. I thought that he was a shark in the same way that I think that CZ is a shark. I now understand that CZ is the only shark, but it was beyond the pale to think that Sam was just stealing people's money and running the scam. And that was that that sentiment carried through to when we published that story. So it feels good to shed light on a subject that the media hadn't really shed light on before. Were we hard enough on FTX and Sam for the years that it that of build up up to that point? Obviously, objectively, no, we were not. We bought a narrative that this entity was engaged in effective altruism at all costs, which actually was the case. I would say that I do think that Sam means it when he's goes when he talks about his effective altruism passions. I think that they probably clouded his judgment though, and his narrative clouded the media's judgment and customers' judgment. And it's the media's job to police those narratives, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting because I think there's a feeling that the press got played in a lot of people you talk to on crypto Twitter. And it's interesting to kind of hear your version of this, which is getting played is not necessarily the problem. Getting played is actually just a function of maybe not having the right information out there or in publishing the right information, right? Like with this balance sheet document. Uh, I think it's fair to say someone had an ulterior motive behind giving you that information. But that ulterior motive doesn't actually impact the truth of that information. It's a very interesting, it, it, it's a very interesting way to look at it from the opposite side, that that the goal of you as a journalist is not outcome-based. It's in some ways process-based. It's it's process-based. The outcome, the, the it, well, it is outcome-based in this sense. If we have information that is truthful information that we think that, that the people have a right to know or would find it useful to know, then we want the outcome to be that we present that information to them. We also want to do it first. We want to we want to get that information out before our competitors do because this is a competitive industry. But we don't publish a story to burn down an empire. We publish a story to publish a story. And on the one in a million chance that it burns down an empire, well, I mean, 
if if the empire deserved to burn, sure that that feels kind of cool, right? But that's not why you publish a story, right? Why do you think you know th- there are there's a few crypto native media outlets that have captured most of the attention and have done candidly most of the good reporting that's come out on the industry, but you have large traditional media organizations that have invested huge sums of money into building up blockchain reporting and crypto reporting teams. Those investments, though, haven't necessarily resulted in the death of Coindesk, the death of the block. They've had really a lot of trouble competing when it comes to breaking stories and when it comes to um, like exclusives. Why do you think that is? Is there something different about the way an organization like Coindesk is structured than a more traditional media organization that starts to try and add a crypto reporting unit to it? Well, it's sort of like the Goldman Sachs Bitcoin desk, right? You know that the sell-off has stopped when Goldman Sachs closes its Bitcoin desk. And you know that the peak of the market has been reached when Goldman Sachs reopens its Bitcoin desk. This has happened on two separate occasions now. So to a certain extent, it's the same thing in, you know, the the TradFi crypto media versus the the crypto native media. The Bloombergs of the world are actually, I would say, better at getting certain scoops than Coindesk and the block and decrypt and, and that, that lot. Uh, those stories are really mostly the stories where crypto has already converged with the, the entrenched financial world. So they have their feelers out in that entrenched financial world. They're better, they're better able to report on it. That's certainly a problem for us because we need to carry, we, the crypto media, need to carry our side of the equation. But I do think that the crypto natives are still better, much better at getting scoops that really dig into the, the so what of the, the token side of the industry because we're much more attuned to that world. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. I want to go back to what we talked about before around citizen journalism and that sort of idea of the crowd logic reporting. I think we've all seen, you know, a huge amount of the insights around something like the FTX story break on Twitter, that there's been incredible reporting done. But a lot of times the first place you start to see things is on Twitter. At the same time, there's a huge amount of false information that was circulating around Twitter at the same time. When you look at something like reporting by non-journalists on Twitter, information that's kind of being shot out, sometimes with sourcing, and the sourcing is just not supporting the statement, sometimes without sourcing, uh, how do you evaluate that? How do you respond to that? And how do you kind of view that as fitting into the the information ecosystem of of crypto? So not all citizen journalists are created equal. CoffeeZilla, wonderful, wonderful work, highly produced videos that really dig into a story and tell that narrative. That's not the norm. Neither the norm is uh, XPT Zach, another on-chain sleuth who will use their tools at their disposal to really dig in and apply pressure and tell the things. There's a whole other class of citizen journalists, though, that simply seem to exist as a high, they, they have a hopper of information that anyone can send in and if that information is salacious enough, they'll just publish it and say, people have told us. Now, statistically, sometimes the rumor mill is right. And sometimes it's right because the people actually know the thing. And sometimes it's right because they're just speculating. And some of the speculations are correct. But I have very little respect for accounts that simply take in information from the public and spew it back out without having some sort of process. I'm not going to name names 
other than to say maybe like actually no i'm not going to name names at all but I, I because it's hard to know for sure who is following what principles but with a with a news organization at least i as someone who is inside of it can be confident that we are following a process you're going to have to take my word that we're following a process but one would hope that a, a an actual company does follow a process i have no faith that that ap abacus actually to name one name i don't know what their name their real name is but that that account they just publish information they dress it up in a way that is meant to be salacious and then they say oh sources and then someone says who's your source and they respond dm me what do you mean dm me if you you can't ask me as a journalist who my source is and i'll respond with dm me i'll tell you privately that's not how this works if it's a if it's an anonymous source it's an anonymous source sorry toots like that's that's how it works and if you're willing to just tell anyone privately maybe because they paid for a blue check i don't know then i have no i have no faith in you whatsoever but some of these citizen journalists are i would say doing good work in terms of getting access and sharing that the sharing the fruit of that access with the world kind of related to that there's this emphasis on the five percent of journalists and journalism that gets it wrong and this is not a crypto specific thing but i think the tech industry in general and the journalism space in general have a pretty adversarial relationship you you see lots of vcs on twitter going off on on tech reporting and and that sort of thing and you see a lot of journalists on Twitter having pretty much the same reaction to to companies that are building, and you know sometimes uh, it, I think there's there's good arguments both ways, right? There's the um, the pretty famous interview where Kara Swisher asks, I think it's Mark Zuckerberg. It was definitely someone at Facebook at the launch of Facebook Live. Like, what happens when the first person goes on a shooting spree on Facebook Live? And the response from Facebook is like, "Oh, we trust our users," which I think we can all agree is a pretty a pretty silly response pretty, pretty boneheaded response yeah but in a, in a way it's also like to have the knee-jerk reaction is not necessarily bad like in, in one way kara's question there is a gotcha right what happens when someone uses your thing to do a despicable act that obviously everyone hates well what are you supposed to say on the other hand it's also a very good question because we've seen people We've, in New Zealand, we've seen people use this technology to spread despicable things with the world, and they would not have been able to do it in the way that they did it without the tool that they had. Does that mean that you like vet everyone before they're allowed to use Facebook Live? Probably not. But you, you have to at least be thinking about the, these possibilities, and you can't just say, oh, well, that's not a fair question when faced with them because it is a loaded question. You have to have thought through these things, I would say. One of the things I've been thinking about lately is how it's not, it's not just the relationship between the tech industry and journalism that's become more adversarial in the last decade, but also the information space in general. Some of this, I think, is good. I think if you go back to 2008, the Obama campaign ran a very similar social media strategy to Steve Bannon's social media strategy. In 2008, this was hailed as something that was interesting and cool and a good use of technology, but you move six years forward and suddenly the perception of a similar strategy has changed. I think largely because the perception of technology and the trust we have in platforms has changed. One of the things that folks in tech ask for, either implicitly or explicitly from media, is a bit more forgiveness, a bit more empathy, the idea we can publish a V1 of a product and not the end state vision. If we hold ourselves to that end state vision as the only thing that comes out, it's hard to ship anything. It's like you can't build anything in San Francisco or permits take years to renew in New York City. And the more process we create, the harder it becomes to actually innovate, solve problems and move forwards. And if one of those barriers is the product has to pass every check mark that a journalist might have for it, that becomes something that's really difficult to actually reach. At the same time, you know, the folks who are not in journalism, who are reading it, are demanding that a story perfectly represents the technical experience of an engineer working on a product. I guess the question is this. Is more empathy needed on both sides? It feels like a lot of the polarization that's come to other social issues is starting to come to tech reporting. 
everyone's got their expectations and value system they're imposing on the process and no one's giving an inch. I am biased here. I am biased toward journalism. But I would say that as a journalist, you don't get free passes, right? You don't get a free pass just because you say, oh, well, it's early and we're building. Okay, that's true. But whatever the thing is that you've built is out now and it is or it isn't working and people are or aren't losing money because of it. The stakes, this is not, in crypto especially, because of the financial interest, there really are no free passes and people will engage in a protocol because they don't understand it all the time. And that's just a, that's just the truth. And so being able to tell the story and hold to account these things is important. At the same time, as a journalist, it's equally important to understand where the subject of the story is in its cycle, where it's self-styled supposed to be, and how it's achieved the level that it already has. And it's important for me, when I'm writing about a thing, to take those things into consideration to make sure that I am presenting the nature of the case in the most accurate way. So the, the, this word empathy, there are stories that I do allow myself to be shaped by, by empathy for, and that's usually when, when it's a case of a story about a person. For stories about companies or projects or entities that are bigger than units of one, empathy doesn't really play as much of a role because, you know, things are either objective or they're not. So that's the, that's the, the, the guiding force because objectivity, you know, everything is subjective, right? But there's, there's a degree to which objectivity can feel more truthful. You know, you, I'm, I'm, I'm falling over my words here because of the inherent mess of this Gordian knot. But it's, it's, as a journalist, it's critical to strive for objectivity and to not be, be bogged down by empathy so much because empathy is something that, you know, people play with your heartstrings. I will say I fumbled a story once. I'll, I'll, I'll tell this story right here. It was about cred. Now, cred, I don't even fully remember what cred was. This is not, this is not crypto cred, the, the Twitter account. This is a company known as cred. And I got an anonymous source one night, maybe two years ago, who was saying, okay, well, there's a lawsuit. And the founder of Cred is suing the other founder of Cred or the, an executive. And, and you can look it up. Here's the case number. It's California case 0-15, whatever. I look it up. Look at that. There's this case. Uh, to, to, to paraphrase what I vaguely remember, there, was, there were some allegations of embezzlement. And it, it seemed like a he said, she said. But it, it, it seemed like something that was worth investigating. So I dig into this case. I end up talking to either the, the CEO or the lawyer of the CEO, as well as the, the lawyer for the other side and hearing both of them. And I basically let myself be won over by the CEO telling me, don't, don't write the story. You know, we're a small company. This is just an inner party squabble. It's like, you know, do, uh, do what you want at the end of the day. But, you know, we're just a small little guys. And I bought it. You know what? I bought it. And I was wrong. I was completely wrong. Other people later wrote that story. I believe Cred filed for bankruptcy. And the reason was because this guy, not the CEO, but the other guy, was alleged in the lawsuit to have embezzled a lot of money. I let myself fall victim to the sense of empathy. And this was, I would say, one where obviously someone was trying to protect their interests, as one always is. But as a journalist, that's not my it's not my problem, right? My problem right. is to bring other people's problems to light. Why do you think there was such a big disconnect between the way crypto native press reported on SBF and FTX versus the way that places like very reputable institutions like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal treated that? I mean, we, we, we saw sort of ambitious visionary who flew too close to the sun type narratives coming from organizations that are, are usually quite hard on anything financial that involves the loss of, of retail money. Well, you know, in a sense, it is ambitious visionary who flew too close to the sun, right? I will say that I believe Sam, when I, I said this earlier, I believe Sam when he says that he was doing it all for effective altruism. 
I think it was a stupid thing to do. And his belief in this philosophy clouded everything else. And it certainly doesn't give him a free pass. And it certainly doesn't mean he didn't commit fraud. I am perplexed as to why an institution like the New York Times will write some of the stories that they do. I'm also saddened by the response that readers give anything that isn't exactly conforming with their view of X is bad. Therefore, all stories about X must present everything as bad. There was a story about how the locals in the Bahamas were we're 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 not rooting for Sam, but we're you know not inherently against him because he'd given a lot of money and you know you know sh- shake the right hands and kiss the right babies and whatever it is. But they were not overly negative as you might have expected about this wonder boy who landed on the island. Now, how did he gain their respect? You could say by taking customer funds and. And, and using them to further his narrative. That doesn't change the fact that his influence campaign worked. And to have a story about the outcome of that isn't an inherently bad thing to do. So I think that people are a little too critical of, of places like the New York Times for, for running those stories. At the same time, it's also important to not just let people ask softball questions. I don't think, though, that the New York Times is bought by Sam. And if the New York Times isn't bought by Sam, then there's no, there's, there's no real reason to think that they're, they have an interest in protecting him. There's not, I would say, I, would, I believe that there's not a conspiracy in this part of the media to shape the narrative around SBF. Which, of course, is a question that we can get a lot thornier if we go into crypto media. Um, I mean, it's a great it's a great pivot because, uh, you know, conflict of interests are nothing new to crypto. Uh, I think it's a it's an industry that's that's suffered from a lot of them. But crypto media is not immune from that either. There, There's, you know, the parent company of Coindesk uh, is in the news a lot right now. Um, the the uh, CEO of the block was in the news a lot for having a close relationship and a monetary relationship with the FTX empire. Um, how do you think about those conflicts um, in media organizations? And, uh, you know, we've started to see more nonprofit media organizations pop up on the local journalism level. Um, over the last decade, do you think the idea of a nonprofit newsroom is something that makes sense in this space as well? A nonprofit newsroom would always be, in my mind, the best case scenario for a newsroom because then you have divorced yourself from issues of of subjectivity. Actually, you know, maybe you haven't. I, I love NPR. When they cover Amazon, they're, they disclose that they receive funding or donations, really, from Amazon. Now, I, I, I hope that they're not being clouded by that. I don't really think they are, but they still have a financial interest. Now, it's a little worse, I will say, in crypto. Like, I am owned by Digital Currency Group. Digital Currency Group is a crypto conglomerate that has, or had, we're not sure, billions and billions of dollars and certainly has investments across the space that is an inherent conflict of interest that everyone should be skeptical of i can say firsthand that i do not myself feel any pressure whatsoever to protect the mothership and i have published stories with gusto as i would any other story that highlight bad dealings or negative news about that parent company as I would any other story, we were the first to to provide some context around the the, the monetary losses of Genesis uh, when it went down uh, and lost uh, what we now know is bi- uh, over a billion dollars to Three Arrows Capital. We were the first publication to write that story, uh, and so I was not dissuaded from writing that story because it was about a sister company of mine. The most important thing, though, is disclosure. And it's disclosure to the staff and disclosure to the readers. 
we disclose whenever we write about Digital Currency Group or Genesis or Grayscale or other wholly owned subsidiaries of TCG, we put in the body of the story that we're a sister company. We also have at the bottom of every story a, a broad, a much more broad disclaimer about how DCG owns us and DCG has invested in like literally every every startup ever in crypto. It's kind of crazy. They just they just spew money at everything. So for for more general stuff, we have that disclosure. But but we know it, the public knows it, and most importantly, I as a journalist do not feel like I'm at all influenced by that. What gets a little trickier though is the, is the story of the block, right? Now the blocks and the owner of the block, uh, Mike McCaffrey, the owner, former CEO, but still current owner, has taken tens of millions of dollars and I believe loans from Sam that he used to fund the operations of the block. Nobody knew about this. I do not think that the writers knew about this. I would hope that they did not know this because the readers didn't know it either. And so that calls into question, well, well, how do you treat the block? I don't think that the block, the writer, I don't think that the writers of the block have done anything wrong. But I also find it very hard to believe that the operations of that newspaper were not altered by a secret, you know, financial interest. It's really hard to know how the other person on the other side of the equation, Sam, is carrying themselves when he's an investor in your thing. If he was ever an anonymous source in a story, a this or that, and he was that 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 may have made him more willing to talk to you as a reporter, and you just didn't know why. Well, that's a huge issue. So I don't know if everyone has fully thought through that aspect of it. But at at the end of the day, the most important thing is full disclosure. We talked a bunch about how the intentionality of the source isn't as important or isn't as critical in assessing the information that sources is providing. As we said, everyone has bias. I guess what you're saying is the difference there is when there's a relationship internal to the organization, that's when it becomes a credibility problem. For for this one, yes. Like this was a relationship that if if the newspaper, if if the company was following its own protocols, then everyone would have known about this thing. This wasn't secret information that no one had the ability to have. This was information that was hidden from the reporters. So that's the difference right there for me. As a journalist covering crypto, what have you learned in the last year that you will take forward into your future reporting? I've learned the critical importance of being more skeptical about everything. And to do my job better. Terra Luna, let's start right there. That is the first domino that knocked over everything. I would I still think crypto would have had a bad year, if not for Terra Luna, simply because the market has had a bad year and crypto is a lot more correlated to the market than everyone would like to admit. That's just a reality. Crypto had a lot worse year because of the of the systemic infrastructural implosions. People, very smart people who I work with, had been saying that Terra Luna was doomed to fail from the start. Did we have, you know, at our disposal the tools to think more critically? Maybe I don't know. In the middle of the the crash of Terra Luna, I helped write a story about how Do Kwan was involved in Basis Cash, another failed algo stable. Some people say, "Oh, did you hold that story until it was optimal to publish it?" No, we of course we didn't. We published it as soon as we were able to. We probably got our hands on that story at the time that we did because people were more willing to flip on Doquan at that point, but we were not trying to hide from anyone. We could have maybe pursued stories like that more aggressively before. You you go from that point to three arrows capital. Okay, well, you know, the, these are these Salunavax so maxi boys who are just levered long on everything. And when they blow up this, this, this hedge fund and who knows where, everything follows into the abyss. 
we could have been more skeptical about just thinking, oh, well, three arrows is invested in this funding round. That doesn't mean it's a good funding round. You, you have to think very critically. You, then, of course, you get to the big one, FTX. Everyone, to an extent, agreed with the narrative of what FTX was, as evidenced by the fact that it only crashed when it did. We needed to be more skeptical in order to better tell that story earlier. So I'm going into um, 2023, or I'm in 2023, with, you know, it maybe it maybe it comes off as cynicism, but I would like to think that I'm I'm, I'm channeling it as warranted skepticism in order to properly write about an industry that is still trying to figure itself out. Well, last question before we wrap up today. Who are the journalists and the writers you think are most worth reading in crypto? Well, obviously, first, everyone at Coindesk, I would say. But for the market that we're in, I think that Matt Levine at Bloomberg continues to have the pole position, just in terms of being a very witty writer who really can get how these things are playing out and can explain them to an audience that is averse to reading the crypto press or just isn't in a position to do so and to read uh, to read the information in a way that relates it to their world he's the best one out there well danny nelson thanks for joining us today thank you validated is produced by ray belli with help from ross cohen brandon ector amira valiani and ainsley medford engineering by podglomerate